This is New England Public Radio's Jazz Beat. I'm Tom Reaney with a podcast edition of my jazz blog, which you can find at nepr.net. For this episode of Jazz Beat, I'm sharing with you another podcast, Open Source with Christopher Lydon. This longtime friend and radio host covers a lot of topics on his podcast, and this time around, he included me. For a special edition of Desert Island Discs, in which I chose eight essential recordings that I would take to a desert island. Enjoy. I'm Christopher Lydon. This is Open Source. Desert Island Discs is the radio game of self-revelation by music. You are the sounds you couldn't live without. Jazz disc jockey Tom Marini is our castaway this hour. Forty years now on public radio, he was supposed to inherit the family's civil engineering business till he found his life in the basement joints of Worcester, Massachusetts, and in blues music at large. The sounds that unlocked Tom Marini had hometown names like Boots Mazzulli and Jackie Byard, then Muddy Waters and Aretha Franklin. When Duke Ellington, the great orchestrator of the blues, stepped in, playing at a hospital fundraiser near Worcester, there was no going back. The rules of Desert Island Discs from the BBC in London during World War II have not changed. Tom Rini arrived with eight tracks of the sounds to sustain him on a beach in the tropics, plus one book and one luxury object. And his story unfolds. The Rini's were a big family growing up, immigrant stock from the west of Ireland. Father and mother loved Broadway show tunes, and father sang them. He took me to see My Fair Lady at the Exeter Street Theater when Rex Harrison was still in the uh, touring company. Wow. Uh, Mid-60s. Came to the the old spiritualist temple yep. on Exeter Street? Yes, sir. Yep. My word. Yep. Why do I take it that it was a noisy household in Worcester? Well, there were seven of us. And uh, four or five driven verbalists among the seven. And, uh, yeah, it was just a big family. My father owned a surveying and uh, civil engineering company in Worcester. He and his brother, Joe. Hmm. So there are a lot of stories from uh, the day's work. In Worcester? In Boston, we always wonder, are we a little New York or a big Worcester? What was Worcester like? (laughs) A little... uh... It was in the shadow of Boston. I could tell you that much, certainly in our household. My parents were both Boston-oriented people, and we were brought here oftentimes for, you know, dinners out, uh, Red Sox games, of course. Tell me to speak your own notes on a life in music. Starting out in Worcester, you're reminding of the sort of regional jazz and small city jazz, but when did the light go on for you? Man, the light went on for me watching uh, the Ed Sullivan show as a kid and seeing two figures in particular, Louis Armstrong and Mahalia Jackson. Hmm. I was really captivated by them both. Uh, And I think that Armstrong, even more than Mahalia, but probably Mahalia too, puzzled me almost in the combination of joy and sorrow that seemed to be just present in Hmm. virtually every note. And uh, the Armstrong, um, that really outsized... uh, a figure of Louis Armstrong. Uh, I didn't really know what to make of him as a kid, but uh, the music was very powerful. And it was an early, um, you know, kind of marker for me because my parents uh, had the Ambassador Satch album that Columbia had brought out in the 50s. And I was really captivated by the uh, cover photo of Armstrong on that jacket, so wearing the cutaway and carrying a suitcase in one hand and the trumpet in the other. 
and looking so uh, sweet and kind of avuncular in that uh, image. And among the records that my parents had, which were mostly Broadway and classical albums and a smallish collection, they rested on the f- carpet in front of the, uh, the uh, family stereo. And I always brought the Armstrong album back out to the front. Whenever I riffled through those, I placed it back on the front. I'm talking probably at the age of seven, eight uh, or so. But Mahalia Jackson really captivated me, too, as a, as a singer. And, um, and I go back that far because I think that what really impressed me very early in life was the, was the mass, was the Catholic mass and uh, the music and the grandeur and the, uh, the Latin the whole aura of the Mass, I think, was the first experience of what I would call awe, and it was duplicated by Armstrong and Mihaly and other figures like that. So interesting, yeah. sorrow and Joy. transcendence in the same note, the same yeah. moment. Something so uh, powerful, and I, I ultimately, I think you'd say triumphant in, um, in what uh, Lewis and Mihaly were exhibiting. But what does it take to hear that? soul, pain, uh, yearning, longing, (laughs) yearning, yeah. Go to your first tune, Tom. The first tune is Jeep's Blues, a blues by Johnny Hodges and Duke Ellington, first recorded in the late 30s with Hodges playing soprano saxophone at the time. But here it's at the Newport Jazz Festival in 1956, which was... Mm a triumphant moment for uh, Duke Ellington and one of the great milestones in jazz history. And this followed the performance of Diminuendo in Blue and Crescendo in Blue that ignited that Newport audience that Damn. evening, a, a performance that featured another Massachusetts-born musician, the s- saxophonist Paul Gonzalez. But with a little time left on the clock, uh, Ellington sort of brought the audience back uh, down to earth, as it were. Yeah, they were going nuts, as yeah. I remember. Oh, yeah. No, it ignited a frenzy in that audience that uh, was rarely seen in the jazz world, really not probably since the late 30s with Benny Goodman at the Paramount or some of Frank Sinatra's shows in the 40s, but uh, the audience uh, reaction was uh, frenzied. And uh, Ellington kind of brought it all back down to earth with uh, Johnny Hodges playing I Got It Bad and That Ain't Good, the great ballad, and then Jeep's Blues. And um, here it is. in a big way? I grew up at a time when um, the civil rights movement was in the news and uh, it was discussed around the family table at times. Uh, uh, My mother's cousin, Owen Murphy, was the editor of the uh, diocesan newspaper, the Catholic Free Press, and he wrote, uh, it was a weekly publication, he wrote editorials every week and was in favor of the civil rights movement, of integration, and it was also an early uh, opponent of the uh, war in Vietnam. Mm. So politics and the civil rights movement were 
prominent um, at the time. And, and so in the world that I grew up in was an element of racism. It was a kind of constant uh, uh, element of my uh, background in uh, the neighborhood I grew up in, in Worcester. You know, virulent racism. And so Duke Ellington and Mahalia and Louis Armstrong and many others, but Ellington was an extremely powerful uh, contradiction to so much of what I heard said about black Americans. And the Ellington performance, I mean, the Newport performance in 56 is so powerful. I mean, it's the ultimate in Johnny Hodges preaching the blues. Mm. And he could preach. And on other occasions, and some of them are on records, you'll hear Ellington exhorting him, you know, verbally, tell him what happened. Tell him what happened. Mm -hmm. The whole kind of storytelling element that helped me understand why I was so drawn to instrumental jazz early on. Because, you know, we're accustomed to vocal music. It's what we hear on the radio. It's what we sing around the house and everything. But there was something about the Ellington players especially and Hodges and the brass players, uh, Tricky Sam Nanton and Cootie Williams and others, who had such a, um, uh, a remarkably expressive quality and uh, an almost verbal quality to what they were saying on their horns. And so that when I heard Ellington say something like, tell him what happened, it made sense hmm. that this guy was telling a story. Your second tune, Tom. Well, this is Louis Armstrong's Stardust. Uh, recorded 1931. It's one of two magnificent takes that he made on Hoagie Carmichael's great song in Chicago in uh, 1931. And um, I'm not the only uh, Louis Armstrong fanatic who uh, goes to Stardust as his number one. It's not that uncommon. Uh, it's just so perfect. Tension, all that release right there, epitomized in that performance. And so intrinsic to jazz, the tension and release qualities that keep us hanging on. He pulls you right in with one note. Absolutely. Louis Armstrong power. Yeah. What was your experience of Louis Armstrong? My appreciation for Armstrong grew somewhat more gradually. Notwithstanding my early allegiance to Duke Ellington, what I really jumped into were the modernists, Charlie Parker. Max Roach, Dizzy Gillespie, Charles Mingus, figures like that. And uh, Armstrong was, uh, you know, by the late 60s, early 70s, uh, the maligning of him as an Uncle Tom, the uh, discrediting of him as a kind of moldy fig or a musician who had not caught up with the times, as it were, as a player who had expressed some disagreement with uh, what the beboppers were uh, doing all made him somewhat uh, uh, not an easy uh, figure to uh, leap into the arms of, as it were. But, uh, but I did, once I heard the historic Louis Armstrong, it was instantaneous uh, love and, and passion for, for his music. They were calling him a Tom. Yeah. And he, 
George Frazier quoted Billie Holiday, no less, saying, he toms from the heart. Right. Yeah. And that was the end of the argument, really. Right. Or as Ralph Ellison said to Albert Murray, he dons a mask, but it's the mask of a major lyric poet. Oh, my God. You know? I would see two of Armstrong, almost more than anyone else in jazz, and especially of an artist whose great work is, you know, in the 12 and 32-bar forms, the blues, the popular song forms. In other words, players whose solos were relatively brief, that the emotional intensity of everything Armstrong played was so great that I often found it exhausting to listen to more than a few pieces by him hmm. at a time. I will, you know, mention that to others, and they kind of readily agree that, yeah, if you're really paying attention to what Louis Armstrong is... Uh, is playing and singing. It's an intense experience. Coming up, the human voice that affected Tom Rini like none other. Also, there's Bach in Tom Rini's bag, as there is in jazz, too. This is open source. Mill towns in New England, like Tom Rini's Worcester, have often been known for their exceptional characters who got away, and some who didn't, like Jack Kerouac from Lowell, Massachusetts, or the operatic soprano Eileen Farrell from Woonsocket, Rhode Island, or the actor-composer John Lurie of the Lounge Lizards, also from Worcester. Musicians in Tom Rini's growing up were passionate artists who knew they were fated to work day jobs to stay alive. Glamour and stardom were something else, to be glimpsed at the El Morocco in Worcester, where performers like Frank Sinatra, Nat King Cole, and Bette Midler would come out from Boston for dinner. A late night dinner, a very late night dinner. <laughs> it was right. in somebody's house. Well, it was in the Abudi family's home, which was a uh, a three decker with a full basement, so essentially a four story Worcester, uh, you know, three decker. And the restaurant was in the basement, so you went through a beaded curtain upstairs and down a flight of stairs into the basement for uh, shish kebab primarily and uh, rice pilaf. Really? And a foyer that was loaded with photographs of just about every Hollywood and Broadway star imaginable. It was amazing to visit and see it for the first time, you know, as a Worcesterite, that all of these major uh, figures and iconic faces had been in town. Introduce number three, Tom. My next selection is Muddy Waters' uh, long-distance call, a blues that he composed first recorded around 1951. This is from 1969, a concert performance in Chicago that was released in the album Fathers and Sons. Uh, the album um, brought together Muddy and the great blues pianist Otis Spann, who had been working with Muddy at that point for about 15 years, with some of the young acolytes who had been mentored by Muddy Waters, principally Paul Butterfield, a harmonica player, and Michael Bloomfield, a guitarist. Both of them were Chicagoans, it was the Paul Butterfield Blues Band in the mid-60s that really alerted uh, a new audience, essentially, to this largely hidden music, music that was really out of view of the American mainstream, of the white middle class, of the college and high school-aged audiences up until that time. Butterfield uh, grew up in Chicago right around the corner, essentially, in Hyde Park, around the corner from the south side, black community where Muddy Waters held forth as the king of Chicago blues and 
played various uh, clubs and taverns and bar rooms in that milieu. And Butterfield was a daring teenage white kid with a passion for the music and with skill as a harmonica player who started hanging out in that world and had uh, enough on the ball and enough promise that figures like Muddy Waters would invite him up to sit in and play with them uh, in the late 50s, early 60s. So, anyway, Butterfield put together a band with his brilliant guitarist, Michael Bloomfield, and they played the Newport Folk Festival in 65, where they probably inspired Bob Dylan to go electric that summer. Then they came to Cambridge and to New York, and they spread this uh, the blues like wildfire, and um, Jeff Muldauer was a Cambridge folkie and a blues aficionado said of the Butterfield band's impact that a the day after their appearance at Newport, a hundred thousand, you know, blues bands sprouted up, across, in, you know, in garages across America. Well, Butterfield always credited Muddy Waters and Little Walter and other of the Chicago blues greats as the players that really needed to be attended to, and he spread that gospel and helped to open doors for the black originators of this music. And Muddy Waters was foremost among them. And he and Butterfield maintained a connection uh, until uh, Muddy died in 1983. They recorded occasionally, and they played this magnificent concert in Chicago in 1969 called Fathers and Sons, and here's this modern adaptation of Muddy's sort of Mississippi Delta-style blues called Long Distance Call. You hear my phone ringing Sound Distant call. I know you hear my phone keep ringing. Yeah, I know it sounds like a long distant call. Muddy Waters had brought the blues from Mississippi through Chicago and in the early 40s, he left the Stovall Plantation in Mississippi in 1943, and he uh, essentially electrified, you know, the basic acoustic-style Delta blues and uh, playing the Chicago bars and taverns. And Muddy's amplification of this music, uh, plugging in his guitar, uh, made that band the prototype for modern blues bands. And, you know, the spinoff from that is rock and roll, the uh, Rolling Stones. And so many groups of that kind model themselves after mm. Muddy Waters, essentially. Tom, you're evoking a time not so long ago when this incredibly powerful music, it's unsubsidized, it's almost non-commercial, you could say. Mm-hmm. It's served locally more than network television, and it's incredibly good. It's now all available at a keystroke on Spotify, and yet something of that local thing is is missing. Certainly, yeah. Not to mention, I would add the pilgrimage element to just buying records, you know, to seeking this stuff out and finding this stuff. I mean, this is what one devoted a lot of time to. In my uh, youth, you know, in our Worcester uh, days, in our mid to late teens, we were coming to Boston four or five nights a week. (laughs) And some of them were just to go to the record stores. And moreover, all of the work of these artists was... (laughs) you know, was not available. A lot of this stuff was by, uh, you know, you got a tip, it was on the grapevine, you sought out people who were record collectors or collectors who sold records out of their basements 
We had a guy in mm. Worcester still at it named Victor Perlin, who's one of the most consulted record collectors in the world when it comes to blues and jump music. And so we had access to uh, people like that in the record stores of Boston and Cambridge. And then, of course, we had Muddy Waters and James Cotton and B.B. King. I saw B.B. King somewhere between 50 and 60 times in my life. Uh, I saw Muddy Waters probably a couple of dozen times, and I met the man. First time I ever saw him, I got to shake his hand. (laughs) So not only were figures like this around and performing a lot, but they were accessible to an audience. Uh, Seeing B.B. King over at Harvard Stadium, and he's greeting you know, a mass of people after this concert and handing out guitar picks, something so courtly, so kindly about these figures. Uh, there was also a wonderfully menacing quality to <laughs> to this uh, scene as well. What was the uh, jointiest joint you ever heard Muddy Waters in? For Muddy, that would have been Sir Morgan's Cove in Worcester, which was uh, a bar now renowned because the Rolling Stones played a one-nighter there. This was more like 1972, it was a joint, and it was a bar, and it was a place where you were within, you know, striking distance, yeah. uh, within slapping palms of the guys on the bandstand. Two tables away. Very, very intimate spaces. And I, I should add, too, that Muddy wasn't there for a night. He was there for a week. <laughs> he had six nights to see these cats. And, of course, they played week-long engagements at Paul's Mall and Lenny's on the Turnpike and Speakeasy Pete's over in Cambridge and Joe's Place would book... Great Chicago blues for multiple nights. and There um, was such a sense, too, of uh, kind of a driving element to this whole narrative is a sense of justice, of why has this stuff been kept secret? Why has it been kept in the dark, so to speak, for so long? Why is it just emerging? And why... Is it that bands that are covering Muddy Waters, say the Rolling Stones, are world-renowned, famous, and getting really rich? And these guys are still working really hard for, you know, a tenth or a hundredth of what the headline rock bands were making. So we grasped onto this um, with a passion for, um, for justice as well as a love for the music and the culture. Tom Reedy, our castaway on a desert island, take us into number four on your song list. Uh, number four is Aretha Franklin, I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. Chris, when I was conceptualizing this list of just eight songs for a desert island, I initially thought Billy Holiday and Lester Young, and my God, I wouldn't want to be without them for five minutes. Mm. But given the confines of a list this small and narrow, I went with the voice that has moved me more than any other in my lifetime. Certainly the the female voice that's moved me the most, and that is Aretha Franklin, without question. Mm. I got to listen to Aretha in the, min- in the moment because her records were contemporary with my youth, with my life, and I got to see Aretha in person. They were all magnificent. My God, they were spine-tingling experiences. And then I saw Aretha around 2003 at the Bushnell in Hartford. And that was one of the concerts that stands as beyond my wildest expectations. Mm. She was so much more than I anticipated she would be at that point in her career. It was amazing. She was lady soul from start to finish that night. She had a big orchestra. 
Strings from the Hartford Symphony Orchestra were deployed for Aretha for part of that concert. And man, she really sang. And she got down and that audience was with her and it was magnificent. Mm. And, uh, and so when she died in August of uh, 2018, uh, it just came back to me how uh, just significant she had been, just that voice. I drove to the Cape on Wednesday night of that week and listened to Aretha the whole ride with my wife, and we cried together. Mm. Man, I was overwhelmed. I'm getting overwhelmed right now just recalling it, but, uh, wow, so powerful and significant. And, um, you know, it's like church music on the radio, you know, in the top ten. It was uh, so gospel-rich, gospel-infused. It had all the intensity of, of the church right there in the top 10. Mm. But uh, her first single for Atlantic, the first thing she cut for the label is My Desert Island Choice, which is, again, is another, you know, it's a bluesy kind of secular tune, but it's got all the power and passion of a gospel song. And it's enhanced by the early appearance on record of a Fender Rhodes piano here adding a little funk to Aretha's performance of I Never Loved a Man the Way I Love You. to say it's not the greatest voice that oh. ever walked the planet. Oh, my God. Take us to your fifth tune, Tom, which sounds like roots music. The fifth tune, as it were, is the Italian concerto by J.S. Bach. And the recording I have is by Glenn Gould. But my first real experience with this work was uh, by Rudolf Serkin in a concert at Symphony Hall in Boston, Again, 1971. Talk about a transcendent experience from, I think, maybe the front row, no less, that evening. It was a December concert that night, and Serkin played works by Beethoven and Schubert and the Italian concerto by Bach. And I'd heard classical music all my life at that point, and I'd seen, uh, you know, symphony orchestras here and there, Symphony Hall and Worcester at Tanglewood, but... There was something about uh, Serkin's solo piano that um, was a real signal moment. say to you? Well, I would call it soul music in a similar way, you know. Classical music was not prominent in my early life, and it was very secondary in the years that I was having this formative experience of jazz, uh, rhythm and blues, and, and such. 
But I had friends who played the music and some who almost chose it in opposition to, say, jazz or blues. There was something of a contest almost around it for a while as to whether or not it was too middle class, too upper middle class, too elite, too much driven by um, patrons and, and all of that and European high culture. And hearing Sirkin that night just melted all of that stuff away for me in an instant. And, and I recognized that music resonates with the soul. It's not just jazz or just blues or just a bent note here or there, but J.S. Bach even, you know, resonated with my soul, much as the music of the church did when I was a kid and continued to actually uh, well into <laughs> my adulthood. But I, I began to listen more openly and um, engagingly with classical music from there on. That breakthrough from worrying that it's too old, too white, to elite, to symphony hall. We all go through that. What punctured the doubt for you? Seeing the concert by Rudolf Serkin in person uh, there in uh, 71. I was 17 or 18 Mm -hmm. in the thrall of of the music and the man. And there was a melodic quality to Bach's music that pulled me right in and that surprised me in a way. And I think it opened the door for me not only to hear to listen, to seek out classical music, but also music that we associate with the American songbook and the beautiful melodies of those songs that sort of first and foremost component of tunes, whether it's Bach or Mozart or Harold Arlen, Ellington, Gershwin, Jimmy Van Heusen that pulls us in and that before the sort of transforming power of the jazz artist is brought to bear on those tunes, they are beautiful works in and of themselves. So just the kind of coming alive to melody that Bach represented, and Mozart certainly also extended to an opening up that I experienced toward the American Songbook. You could go many examples of that, of Jewish Tin Pan Alley tunes from Jerome Kern, Richard Rogers, Gershwin, others, that came to life in a totally different way. When Charlie Parker plays Dearly Beloved by Jerome Kern, or Coltrane adopts My Favorite Things from Richard Rogers as his theme song, I always remember Ira Gershwin saying, he outlived George, obviously, and he heard Ella Fitzgerald sing their songs. He said, we didn't know how good they were until we heard Ella sing them. There is some sort of meeting, yeah. exalted meeting of these two great migrations, the black migration out of Jim Crow and the Jewish migration out of Eastern Europe. That's what we're celebrating in a lot of cases. Certainly, you know, the foundations of the truest American Culture and identity are right there in that nexus of Jewish and black and, and the American songbook and the enhanced life that uh, those songs were given by jazz artists. But the integrity of those tunes is Amen. there to begin with. Amen. You know, I mean, Coleman Hawkins may not play the melody of Body and Soul, <laughs> but he's playing Body and Soul, you know. You don't need to be a musician to know what that tune is instantly uh, when you hear Coleman Hawkins' famous recording of it. Um, And similarly with Sonny Rollins and Train and Charlie Parker. ¶¶ 
Coming up, Tom Rainey's biggest mistake on the radio and how we get away with it. This is Open Source. A disc jockey and his music. Three tunes to go in Tom Rainey's tell-all trip through his desert island discs. There were mistakes along the way. Jelly Roll Morton sat down with Alan Lomax at the Library of Congress in 1939 and talked for hours, multiple days, and recorded one of the great documents of American music and folk culture. Mm. Deep New Orleans background, deep into the origins of jazz out of ragtime. And he played any number of tunes. And about 25 years ago, some of those Library of Congress recordings were released. And one night, I played Morton's Wine and Boy Blues from the Library of Congress. And I lowered the monitor, and I went into the music library directly across the hall. This was the near the end of the show, and I had the monitor off. So I'm getting together a couple of things for the following night's show, and I came back in, and the Morton comes to an end, and I concluded the, uh, you know, I back announced it. And about two days later, I run into a friend downtown, and she says, hey, thanks a lot for playing Jelly Roll Morton the other night. And I thought, well, you know, it's not that unusual for me to play something like that. I, I wasn't sure why she made such a to-do of it. And then a couple of weeks later, I listened to it, and I was shocked at how obscene this performance of Wine and Boy Blues was. <laughs> Just shocked. So good you stepped out of the studio, oh Tom. Yeah. Right on, yeah. Your family says, we don't think of him as a disc jockey. We think of him as a teacher, a preacher, uh, an educator in the true art of America. How do you feel it? How does it work? Well, I had a passion for the music, and I was a proselytizer from early on. I was on the corner. I was shouting about this from the rooftops. Uh, you didn't spend much time with me without sort of a deep engagement with uh, whatever my latest mm. hot item was off the turntable. So I suppose becoming a radio host was a natural uh, evolution. Tom Rainey, talk your transition into what we think of as modern jazz, kind of old now, but something new, post-Ellington, big bands, and take us into your sixth disc. When I became aware of Charles Mingus... It coincided with Mingus's reemergence, reappearance on the scene as a recording artist and, and a traveling musician. He had taken a, a break in the late 60s, and there was big news with the reappearance of Mingus around 1970 and 71. I got to see him at the jazz workshop when he made his first appearance back in Boston at that time. And that was an absolutely profound experience, uh, being within, say, 10 feet of Charles Mingus in that intimate space with those perfect acoustics and hearing his quintet that evening. But it was one of those pure Mingus moments when the pianist showed up late and uh, uh, an obviously annoyed Mingus vacated the piano bench. And this man sat down and Mingus just sort of bugged him for the rest of the set about uh, the chords that he wanted played and, and what have you. I mean, Mingus was sort of notorious for that, but to see that the first time I ever saw the man was really something. 
And the music was incredibly dynamic and powerful. It was a three-horned front line of trumpet, alto, and tenor. And Mingus, you know, uh, there on a stool playing double bass. And his music was so multifaceted, uh, but my early uh, exposure to it was uh, his albums Mingus Om and Blues and Roots, both 1959, both masterpieces. Blues and Roots was more deliberately a kind of blues and gospel album. It was at the direction of the suggestion of Atlantic Records that he make a record devoted basically to blues and gospel. And Mingus's own youth in Los Angeles included experiences in what he called the Holiness Churches, the Pentecostal Churches, uh, with the Wednesday night prayer meetings in addition to Saturdays and Sundays. And so he called on all of that in this uh, work that he called Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting. And it's wonderfully complex, Mingus. Uh, there, are, there are different time signatures through the piece, some, some going on simultaneously, great tension between the rhythm section and the pianist. And then on top of it all is this uh, tenor saxophone break by Booker Irvin, a wonderfully expressive and powerful Texas-born tenor saxophone player. And in this work especially is, to me, the greatest example that we have on jazz records of a kind of speaking in tongues. And the break that Booker Irvin plays where he's accompanied only by some hand clapping by the band. So this is Charles Mingus's Wednesday Night Prayer Meeting. Around the time that Mingus reemerged, he also published a memoir, an autobiography called Beneath the Underdog, which got a lot of attention at the time. I read it. I was there to buy it the day it appeared in the Ben Franklin bookstore in Worcester. And it's, uh, it's an amazingly powerful uh, read with Mingus beginning with a comparison himself with the Trinity. And, and it's all from there. It's, it's an amazingly frank, unsparing narrative about his struggles as a man as a black man, as a son, and as a lover, as a thinker in this uh, crazy and complex and racist world. Tom Reedy, come back to some of the New England, maybe Worcester musicians that you grew up with or that you, you knew in a close way and identified with. You know, to me, the experience that I've had with music has been almost from the start in connection with people I knew. So there are these iconic figures, the great geniuses of jazz and, and other music that have been, you know, part and parcel of the whole experience. And I think I was guided and inspired by a connection to local players, kids I grew up with, the Babe and Kenny Pino. The Worcester jazz community had a number of African-American players, especially, who were a generation or more older than we were, but around 1970, a club in the city called the Kitty Cat Lounge was established. It was a black-owned establishment owned by two musicians, Bunny Price and Reggie Wally. And, you know, they had soul music on weeknights. It was kind of a chitlin circuit club, but on Thursday evenings and Sunday afternoons, they had jazz jam sessions. 
And they invited some of my friends, Babe and Kenny Pino, uh, were among them, onto the bandstand on Sundays to play, you know, good down-home jazz and blues. And those were really formative experiences of seeing the music before a largely black audience and the kind of informal call-and-response ritual element that was very evident at virtually all of those jam sessions that I attended at the Kitty Cat. Take us to your number seven. On the Worcester scene, there was the jazz uh, scene at the Kitty Cat, and then there were a bunch of uh, younger guys, uh, my contemporaries, uh, uh, men and women who were playing blues, basically, and soul music, and and uh, Dennis Brennan was one of those. Um, he came into town to spell Babe Pino for a while, and Dennis made an immediate impact as, as an outstanding singer, a really gifted vocalist, uh, still in his teens. I've known Dennis now for a long time and uh, followed his career, and he's been based in Boston for uh, probably 40 years or more, and he's done everything from new wave and punk to uh, country to uh, blues and rock and roll. A very gifted songwriter and singer Terry Gross had him as her guest on Fresh Air at least 20 to 25 years ago uh, as kind of the exemplar of the Boston scene. And Dennis is still at it. He plays the Lizard Lounge in Cambridge regularly. And he's got a dynamite band that Peter Wolf adopts when Peter goes on the road. And it's a band that has two brilliant guitar players, Kevin Barry and a kid from Worcester, Duke Levine. Blues is so prominent in the rock and roll mix, but so is gospel music. And uh, here's a great example of it in a song that Charlie Rich uh, composed and that Dennis Brennan sings, I Feel Like Going Home. Lord, I feel Tried and I failed, and I'm tired and weary. Everything I did was wrong, and I feel like gold. You know, part of what I've been moved by in the experience of knowing musicians, rock and roll, blues, jazz, classical, how hard the work is and how total the dedication has got to be. Phil Woods said, if you're thinking about a career in jazz, you got to know it. It's got to be the fire in the belly. It can't be a passing thought. You've got to be totally committed to this. And that's what I've experienced knowing Dennis and other musicians, that uh, they're in it for the long run, and it's a hard road. Most of the guys I know who are great musicians have day jobs. I mean, even that, that pantheon of Worcester jazz men, they work day jobs too. They eschewed the road. Most of these guys stuck around town to raise families, and they had day jobs, and they worked the night shift they were night creatures, you know, when the work was available. And Dave McKenna even was a telling example in, in a way of that, too, to see this guy plying his trade primarily at those Cape Cod roadhouses and raising his family down there in Dennis. Uh, McKenna, you know, is, of course, renowned uh, in the jazz world as one of the greatest pianists and, and in the estimation of many, the greatest solo pianist of his era, at least. 
music has such a, you know, an aura of glitz. And most of the people I know who have applied the trade have, um, I don't even ask them how they manage to make ends meet. It's like, uh, you know, the economics of of a career in music, uh, puzzling. Um, it's part of what has motivated and guided my work just to show as much respect as I can for the artists themselves and the way I present their music on the radio. But that's really what guided me into radio, was just that desire to share the uh, the joy and the truth and, um, and the message of um, all too often largely unknown or under-recognized geniuses. Bring it home, Tom Reedy, in a way, in your own terms, with the great Coltrane. John Coltrane, another of the musicians that I encountered almost instantly in, uh, in my jazz uh, exploration and was uh, drawn to through the work that I knew by Coltrane with Miles Davis and Coltrane's great uh, work for Prestige and Blue Note, his album Blue Train, among others in the 50s. And then some of his work in the 60s was very challenging uh, for me early on. And Coltrane, I heard something that was uh, uniquely and differently spiritual, something so powerful and direct to the soul as the experience I've had listening to John Coltrane uh, over the years, and I find him indispensable. I have a collection of Coltrane's music that I probably turn to more than any other of a sort of specialized, you know, reeny playlist nature that I listen to around the house or in the car. Train just uh, cuts deep to what matters, and I love Coltrane ballads. I love A Love Supreme, the great spiritual work, the great uh, expression of thanks uh, to God. His album Crescent is a masterpiece from that same year as A Love Supreme. But there's a Coltrane energy that, uh, that I'm especially drawn to. And, uh, and here it's epitomized in this work, Impressions, which Coltrane played at the Village Vanguard in the early 60s when he was working out, you know, um, a band of his own, as it were, after leaving Miles in 1960. A train was experimenting with different players and uh, working with different players and coming to form that quartet that would be together for about five years. But uh, here at the Vanguard, it's Jimmy Garrison and Elvin Jones, McCoy Tyner, piano, and near the very end of this long piece is Eric Dolphy playing bass clarinet. For the most part, Tyner lays out, and it's Train and Jimmy Garrison and Elvin Jones. And, you know, we began with Duke Ellington and Johnny Hodges, and I think of those tandems that are common in jazz, Max Roach and Charlie Parker being another good example of it, and really none more so than Coltrane and Elvin Jones, and here they are at their peak playing impressions. There's an expressive power and depth to Coltrane that is constant. Uh, John was there 100%, you know, uh, and that's putting it mildly, really, from start to finish. There are no weak moments with Coltrane. He's all in. 
I mean, they say the train had trouble taking the horn out of his mouth. He was so, um, uh, had a, a compulsion, perhaps, to play it uh, on a bandstand and off, you know, at home. Train was, uh, he had a lot to express and a lot of energy with which to do it. John Coltrane has a power and intensity that is uh, similar to the music of the church. The train is the church and modern jazz combined. It's not apparent that Coltrane's playing gospel music, but he's playing with that kind of spiritual fervor that would have been nurtured in the church. And I think the sense of free expression that Coltrane employed somewhat controversially, certainly groundbreakingly, in the 60s, had its roots in the church. Two more goodies, Tom Reedy, before we can leave you to your desert island. A book and a luxury item. What do you have? Ulysses. <laughs> With the guide by Harry Blamires. The essential guide to Ulysses by Harry Blamires. And finally, if you can only pick one of those eight, Tom, what's it going to be? Probably Louis Armstrong. Stardust. Tom Reedy, it's been such a privilege to listen to you so long, three hours a night, Monday through Friday. It's a joy to hang with you. My pleasure. You're on the right track. Yeah, man, I've been listening to you for a long, long time, <laughs> so feeling is mutual, Chris. Tom Reedy's addictive Jazz a la Mode radio show is broadcast on New England Public Radio, NEPR, live weeknights from 8 to 11 p.m. and online at nepr.net. You can find Tom Reedy's Desert Island playlist on our website, radioopensource.org. I will post my own eight-tune all-time playlist if you'll send us yours. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and think of leaving something in the tip jar for the hardest-working team in radio. Special thanks to the BBC for the very idea of Desert Island Discs in 1942. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath is our island queen. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time for Open Source. <laughs>